21st Century Women on Cambridge 105 Radio and HCR 104 FM. In this edition of 21st Century Women, we hear about mantinatal classes. Yes, that's antenatal classes held specifically for dads-to-be, run by Jenny Barrett from the NCT. Ever thought about finding your food in the wild? Well, we go out foraging with Kerry Bonas, who teaches people how to find edible treats in the hedgerows. And have you fancied living on a houseboat? Well, we meet someone who's doing just that. Lucy Kay tells us about the highs and lows of living on a boat. That's all coming up in this edition of 21st Century Women. studio we have Bobby Jones. Hello there. And we've got Liz Kelly. Hello Linda. And we've got me Linda Ness. How are we this evening ladies? Fine. Yeah good. Good. A little bit cooler today? Oh yes thank goodness. Yes a lot of people are saying that. (laughs) Frankly I love the heat. Me too. (laughs) I know I love it. it. All for it as well. Well we've got some great stuff coming up tonight as I've just said. It's uh, natural that women want to find out as much as they can before the birth of their child. But men do as well. And often couples go along to antenatal classes together. But Jenny Barrett has come up with a different idea. She sees groups of dads-to-be in mantinato classes. The first time the doctor placed you in my arms I knew I'd meet death before I let you meet harm Although questions arose in my mind Would I be man enough against wrong? Choose right and be standing up So today I am sitting with Jenny Barrett Jenny, what is your title? I'm an antenatal teacher for NCT Which is the largest parenting charity in the UK And we do a range of things, but one of the things that we do is provide antenatal classes to expectant parents. Expectant parents, you said. But I have looked you up on the internet and I know that what you specialise in is antenatal classes for dads. Yes, that's been a sort of special interest of mine for uh, quite a few years. I started off teaching antenatal classes for NCT 15 years ago taught for about five years or so um, couples and often felt that I didn't have enough time to concentrate on the particular needs of the dads and had always been interested in that and felt that at times they wanted to spend more time thinking about things from their perspective but it wasn't always easy to do that in a couples session. So we started off with me doing it as a monthly drop-in evening session I began to sort of find my feet with well what seems to work and you know what do they seem to enjoy and what do they seem to get stuff out of but the last couple of years at NCT we've been doing a massive review of all of our services and during that review period we're concentrating on what we consider to be our core business and because I was the only (laughs) antenatal practitioner in the country who was offering these mantenatal which is the name that we come up with in terms of these uh, sessions Um, unfortunately that was also pulled so the way that I'm doing it now is that I'm running a dad's only session within my NCT couples courses so I run a couples course and one session of that course 
is a dad's only session. I like the idea of the course because men like to be together, don't they, on their own. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. you've got a man's one day. Is that just for the fellas? Yes, absolutely. So the way I run it now is that um, we have one evening session. So that'll be a two hour session that is just for the dads. So the, the mums don't come to that session. And the way that I run it is that I get some dads to come who are previous course attendees but have recently had their babies so this week I did it and I had uh, two dads come along one with a a 12 week old and one with an eight week old and so the first half an hour of that hour session is just open to the expectant dads to ask questions of the visiting dads what sort of questions do the dad ask? All sorts of things. But a lot of it is around how have they found it going back to work after their babies were born, any kind of tips in terms of how to support their partners, being at home with the babies, that kind of thing. How was the birth experience from their point of view? You know, sometimes they'll say things like, I'm really concerned that I won't feel like I'm of any help. You know, how did you find it? any kind of tips that you can pass on really kind of more practical things like what did you take with you to hospital that you found really useful they often ask in terms of baby equipment have you bought something that you haven't used which opens up a really interesting discussion about actually how much kit do you need for a newborn and often the visiting dads will say we've got stuff that we haven't even got out of the boxes yet because actually you don't need very much uh, when they're tiny and so they'll sort of share their tips in terms of that it's also just lovely because the visiting dads tend to be so confident with their babies by that point and often the expectant dads that's a huge thing for them they're really nervous and anxious about holding their babies about going out and about with their babies how's that going to be whereas of course the reality is that within a week or so you feel really confident and comfortable with that because you're doing it all the time but it's sometimes difficult for them to get that perspective so the fact that they can see how comfortable and confident the visiting dads are and that they've come on their own that's just huge I think I did sort of think to myself, well, do dads really want to be a part of what is totally Mm. a female experience of childbirth? Mm. I think that's a really interesting question because I think in previous generations, you're absolutely right. It was a very female dominated experience. There's been lots written on this, actually, because, you know, we know that the society has changed, hasn't it? And certainly a lot of the couples that I work with are far away from their extended family. So they haven't got that female to female support in the way that they used to. So that's one challenge, I think. I think it's also that I think things have changed a lot in terms of the couple relationship. There's now very different expectations in terms of that whole couple dynamic and that it's more seen as a you know an equal partnership if you like and I think there's an expectation on couples part that they will do things together and I think this would be one of those things I mean it's one of the questions I often ask actually in my dad's only sessions is a do you know whether your own fathers were present when you were born? Because actually I tend to find about half of them don't actually know. But then I say to them, have you actually had a conversation with your partner about whether you would be there or not? And they all say no, because there's an expectation they'll be there. There's been no need to have that conversation. There's an expectation that dads will be there at the birth. 
And we know that in terms of the statistics, couples that are together in terms of a couple relationship, over 95% of those dads will be present at the birth of their children now. So that's a huge change in quite a short space of time. And from my point of view, I think one of the things that's really fascinating about that is that that change has come about, but really we haven't thought about how do we prepare those men for that experience how that's going to be from their point of view, what can they usefully do to support their partners, but how can they also look after themselves in terms of that experience. And I I think that, for me, is what's missing, and that's really what I'm aiming to help them with. First-time dads don't know what to expect any more than first-time mums, so why should they be any different? Mm -hmm. Do you help them to look ahead and to see what a good dad looks like? Well, we certainly do in NCT classes. We very much cover about the postnatal, early postnatal period as well as the birth itself. That's a huge part of the course. So one of the things that we would look at is sort of how confident are you feeling about that? What are the things that we could do in the course to help you to prepare for that better? And I think there's sort of two aspects to that, really. Some of that is the really practical stuff which actually tends to be the things that they ask for. So that's how to change a nappy, how to bath a baby, what sort of equipment do I need, what is the guidelines in terms of how babies should be put down for sleeping, that kind of thing. So we will do all of that because I think that's really important. But I think there's another whole aspect to it, which is kind of the emotional side of things. And uh, so we kind of look at things from the dad's perspective as well. So in terms of bonding with the baby, what things they can do with their babies, but also about the fairly new research that we've got now in terms of baby's brain development, in terms of what babies can actually do at that point and what's important to them in terms of trying to form that strong attachment with their parents. And also things around emotional well-being for parents. I think that's really important. I mean, of course, we talk about things like postnatal depression and exploring the fact that we know that uh, dads in the first year after a baby is born are more likely to suffer with depression than other men of similar age. So we'll talk about that too. That's to do with more around the huge lifestyle change that it is uh, for men at that point. But we know that there are actually hormonal changes for men around the time of birth as well. Again, this is quite new research, really interesting stuff that they found that if uh, a man is living with his pregnant partner, then towards the end of pregnancy, his testosterone levels will drop, which makes him sort of more open to the nurturing role within fatherhood. We know that oxytocin, a hormone that's vital for the process of labour and involved in the bonding process, increases for men as it does for women. That's absolutely fascinating. I would imagine that maybe dads were a bit fearful of if their wives were coming towards the end of their pregnancy, Mm -hmm. that they weren't going to have sexual relations Mm -hmm. very much. Mm -hmm. And I would have thought that might have been a big problem to them. It's certainly something that we often explore. I think it's one of those things where if we can be quite open about it, 
and talk about the fact that there might be a mismatch in terms of libido at that point. I mean, I think pregnancy is an interesting one because actually it varies a lot for a woman. Some women actually find their libido increases during pregnancy and for others it it does definitely decrease. Postnatally, in the early postnatal period, I think we can be pretty certain that a woman's libido is going to be fairly low at that point. But I think if you can talk to men about why that is, that Obviously, there's all the physical side in terms of recovery from the birth and and that side of things. And I think they get that. They understand that. But one of the things I've always found really interesting to talk to them about is that it's a huge change from a woman's point of view that she's caring for this little baby 24-7, pretty much. I mean, obviously, the dads are wanting to be involved, but they're not going to be involved to the same extent largely because most of them are going to go back to work within a couple of weeks. So for that woman, she is likely to have that baby in very close proximity to her, in her sort of personal space, if you like, a lot of the time. And what we know is that for a lot of women... That is a big issue, that they're used to being quite independent people. They're used to having a lot of personal space. And that actually, even if it's a subconscious thing, they crave that that personal space. And so I often talk to dads about the fact that when your baby has kind of gone down for a nap, perhaps, on a weekend afternoon, you might think, this is a fantastic time for us to spend some time together. And I absolutely understand that. And if your partner doesn't seem very keen, you might then feel that that's because she's gone off you. But actually, that's to do with the fact that she's craving that personal space. So I think that's a really important part of exploring. Absolutely. It's a great, huge life change Mm. when a new Mm. baby arrives. And certainly the first one, because you just Mm. don't know what to expect. You don't realise how much time this baby takes up. Mm. You know that you're going to lose your sleep, but somehow Mm. something in the back of your brain tells you it's going to be okay. Mm. And actually, it isn't always... I think that's fair. I mean, I think there's a balance to be had in terms of talking about these things antenatally, because I think, we, yes, we need to paint a realistic picture for people. We also need to help them to understand why it is, for example, that babies need to be fed so frequently through the night. I mean, I talk to couples a lot about, you know, if people come and visit you when you've got a new baby, what's the first thing that they ask you? And everyone will say, they'll ask us how the baby's sleeping. Yeah, They will. Okay, is it realistic for a newborn baby to be sleeping through the night? Well, no, it isn't, is it? Let's talk about why that is in terms of what's going on for them physically. I think if they can understand that, then hopefully they can be A, more prepared, but also more sort of empathetic towards their babies, that it's not that babies being difficult by waking up in the night. That's actually what they physically need to to do at that point so I think if they can understand all of that that can be helpful but I think it's also that we need to be careful not to paint that early postnatal period as kind of totally doom and gloom in terms of this is going to change your life because everyone will be telling them that at this point all their work colleagues and so on will be making the kind of jokes about your life's never going to be the same again and all that and I understand that but actually we also need to be explaining to them that this can be a hugely positive time and again for me personally that's where the visiting parents can be so useful because this week the two visiting dads that I had come to the antenatal session said 
This has been the best thing that I've ever done. It's absolutely fantastic. You know, try not to worry too much because actually the positives far outweigh the negatives. So I think it's important that we get that balance. That was Jenny Barrett speaking to Bobby Jones about mantonatal classes. The music was Will Smith, Just the Two of Us. I thought that was great, and I love that idea. My husband was very reluctant to come along to the NCT classes that I went to, and he found every excuse in the book. He had to work. He had to go to some meeting. He had to do this, that, and the other, because he didn't really want to be there. I think he'd have gone to that, the mantonatal class. Great idea. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it was fantastic. And Jenny was just so, just the right person. She's got such a, a wonderful character and all the fellas would have just listened to her because she's very charismatic. It yeah. was really good. Yeah, no, uh, great idea. And um, I think it was a shame that, uh, I think they had more of them and they had to cut them down slightly at one point. But um, great idea. Keep it up, Jenny. I think that's exactly what we want. Men more involved in this kind of thing. This is 21st Century Women. So, there you are. You're out for a walk in the lovely summer sunshine and you see some lovely looking berries, just ripe and just just lovely inviting. But are they safe to eat? And what could you do with them? Could you cook them? Can you just eat them raw? Kerry Bowness teaches people how to forage and Liz Kelly went out for a walk with her. doing this then, then um, so while I was at university um, I was doing a, a grassland management uh, assignment and I uh, I went into the hortic section and started just book browsing and I found a, a little passage that uh, in a book that said I can't even remember the name of the book that said the dahlias were originally grown as a root crop in South America um, and the Europeans brought them over back over to Europe with them because they thought they were pretty <laughs> um, so I thought oh I'm a poor student I've got dahlia growing in, in my student digs um, what else is there that is that I know that is uh, or I can ID so I um, it kind of sprang from there and I started off with what I now term edimentals so that's the plants that we grow in our gardens for their ornamental value but they're also edible right. um, and then I that sort of led on to well, what wild plants do I know and then I started going on people's courses and and then reading reading and reading so and then that you know spiraled to include mushrooms and then I've come and sort of come back towards learning more about edimentals because we're, you know, the, the climate has warmed up over here there are a lot more plants different plants that people are growing in their gardens and talking a lot to different growers there's, there's lots and lots of new garden edibles that we can mm. we have. You know, when I was a child, growing a pumpkin in the UK was unheard of. Really? Um, <laughs> so I don't remember um, that, but maybe yeah. you're right. I never um, grew one. <laughs> so I was uh, in Liverpool, and now you know they're growing everywhere. So it's you know it's constantly changing for different things, and people are buying things for ornamental value, not realising 
Hazel but hazel well so yes that's where it's kind of spiraled from it's an amazing um subject you know it's the the more you learn the less you know it's right okay. constantly constantly You're obviously deeply yeah. fascinated by yes. it and, uh, yeah it's a very exciting yes it is. Part to it is and more and more people are taking an interest in it and you know when i ask people on my courses why you know what do you want to get out of today why why have you come along they'll say things like you know it varies from uh, I, I want to know about the free food that's growing in my garden <laughs> to um i want to connect more with nature um i want to get outside more i you know i go walking and i'm constantly walking past things and wondering for me it, you know it tends to what i tend to find is gives people a bit more of a respect and understanding of um, how systems work and how things rely on certain plants rely on certain fungus and um and certain plants rely on other plants and yeah it's certainly i know people who've been on courses have said to me they've now planted beech trees in their gardens because they know that certain types of mushrooms like to grow in beech trees okay. unfortunately for them, it's going to take a long time well um, yeah you need to but, but you, you know, need to plant it 30 years yeah. ago they always say that about trees don't they yeah but you know it is a start yeah it'll be there so, for someone else yeah how would you know if it's legal to take a plant do you need to have read up the rules? Yep, so I give people a little bit of a, an overview of the rules and regulations of, of foraging. So there's things that we need to be aware of. So there's the Wildlife and Countryside Act, which dictates foraging on common land. So you can essentially, as long as you don't uproot anything, you can forage as much as you like from common land for personal consumption only. So you can't forage too sell commercially okay so we're on common land now but a lot of common land is managed by district councils or conservation organizations so this site specifically has bylaws so you have to then look at check the bylaws they're actually on the back of the welcome board which is true of most Mm. common land you look on the back of the welcome board and it'll say uh, the bylaws which are specific laws for here and one of them is a no pick rule so Huntingdon District Council have given me special permission to pick for ID purposes and for the small meal we have at the end while we're running the courses only. Yeah. So I wouldn't be able to come here um, routinely next forage. week and just forage for and, my dinner. And neither would anyone else? No, no. Right. So we're very grateful to them for allowing me to run these courses here because it, it's a beautiful venue. Absolutely. Um, and and you know, all credit to them, it's, it's absolutely immaculate. Very, very well maintained. And then um, we have nature reserves, which you know, a lot of nature reserves are foraging friendly, but you absolutely have to get in touch with whichever organisation... Ooh, oh yeah, little caterpillar like that. Um, but you absolutely have to ask them for permission. Sometimes they'll say no. Sometimes they'll say yes. But you know, if you if you don't and you're caught and you you get a ranger who's he's enforcing the rules and regulations of that site, you might find the, the, uh, the fine. Um, yeah. In this country, we have what's called triple SI sites. They're sites of special scientific interest. They're designated that for a reason. Whether it's because it's you know, there's a certain feature or there's a, a species that's reliant on that environment. As novice foragers, we just ask people to stay off them because you know we, we don't expect everyone to understand the whole life cycle. So it's best just to yeah. leave them alone, leave them to you know to nature. That's what they're there for. 
Um, and then private lands. Now, private lands is... Um, That's your best hope, is, then. Yeah, it's one of the, the best places to forage because on private land, you can do uh, whatever you want with the yeah. landowner's permission. Exactly. The only exception being is that if something is on what we call a red data list and it's very, very rare, mm. you shouldn't pick it at all. And the number one golden rule of foraging is that you never put anything in your mouth unless you're 100% sure of what it is, that it is edible, and that you're not allergic to it. So if you see something that you don't recognise and it's potentially rare, hopefully, then you just leave it alone. And if you do recognise it and you know it's rare, then you should be leaving it alone. Anyway, yeah. Um, on private land, which include you know, things like farmland and people's from gardens. I get a lot of my supplies from my neighbours and friends' gardens because you know their gardens make up an awful lot of green space in the UK and uh, yeah, people are m- usually more than happy for me to take uh, mushrooms off there. <laughs> mm. Ah! Oh, I this is uh, meadow sweet. Um, okay. It's a bit like a furry sort of cocoa. Yeah, party. It, it, it's, it has, see these little, um, it, it's got a very strong medicinally smell, but um, see these little uh, intermediate leaves yeah. there, that's one of its ID points. So it's got uh, this red okay. stem and then yeah. these little tiny intermediate, they never get any bigger than that. And it likes to grow in damp places, which is uh, why I've come down to the water here. Yeah. Um, to have a look, we've got, looks like we've got a bit of bit more mint down here as well really we've got some more water mint oh goodness so uh a few things to talk about here and um, it's nice and cool <laughs> yes yeah so you um, spend a while down here yeah. and you do, the other thing about private land is as well is you can ask people have they sprayed anything are they spraying for bugs or you know farmers yeah. are they spraying for uh pesticides or anything like that so um it's good the whole thing is it's ask permission and talk to people sure that's that's the key, really. You can go, get down and reach deeper water. They're the ones that are likely to survive. You can see if you're relying on, on this, survival is tough, isn't it? There's, there's definitely going to be periods where you, you can't cope with all that you can find. Yeah. <laughs> so this is where preservation methods come into yeah. To play. Yeah, this is you know where we really need to think about preservation and and how you know things like dehydrating obviously these days we've got sugar salt as well we can pickle things we're sitting next to a rose rose yep. here so earlier on in the year we would have been able to use the petals for jams and syrups and jellies and and as a salad leaf now yeah we'll, we'll be keeping an eye on these for their hips so they're green at the moment so and a couple of months when they're red and try and let them go frosty these days we don't need we don't have a true frost early frost anymore so we can stick them in the um, in the freezer um, and just let them what's called blet uh, a little bit gives them a little bit give makes them a little bit sweeter it's it's technically it's, it's rotting cold rotting oh, okay um, slow rotting yeah, yeah. it's the kind of thing you do with a meddler meddlers are vile if you eat them <laughs> eat them straight but if you let them blet they um they become much sweeter and then we use the hips the hips are loaded with vitamin c but the inside the hips are lots of seeds that are covered in tiny little hairs and the tiny little hairs were um were used for to make itching powder so you've got to deal with those hairs so either you can score the skin of the, the hip without penetrating the seed the center where all the seeds are and try and extract the, the flesh that way you can spend an age scooping the seeds out or just process them with all the hairs in and then just strain and um, that means you're going to have to use 
jellies rather than you wouldn't be able to make a jam that way. Um, but some so of the bigger rose hips, some yeah. quantity that way. Yeah. 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 But some of the the bigger rose hips, like the Japanese rose that grows in the UK, has a nice big round hip underneath the the flower, and that's quite easy to get the seeds out. Um, but it is. Uh, you know, it's something that requires a bit of patience. Um, but if you know, if we were doing it to survive, that's what we you know, do we it. Done. Yeah. Gosh, these uh, they really are str- struggling. These plants. When I was a yeah. kid, I lived in the Forest of Dean near the um, Beecham factory, and right. they they got the school kids. They'd put a call out for us to collect rosettes, mm. and we did. I yep. think we got we got loads for them. I'm not quite sure what was behind that whether it was just a sort of educating school kids thing or yeah or uh, they really were short of roses <laughs> i don't know and then here we've got this is wild carrot okay uh, i can Dalkus see now how that yeah so this is the yeah. uh, idea of yeah. the hemlock yeah so it's this leaf would look very very similar to it but there's things with uh with wild carrot we can use to tell it apart like the um the stem is very hairy and um if i can find a doesn't look particularly hairy. Um, here we go. Okay, I can see it now. Yeah. yeah. Can't see it on this one, but they usually have a. Uh, you can just see it forming on that one. This the common name is Queen Anne's lace because they have a central blood red dot. This one's lost theirs, but it's just there. Hmm. It looks like to me. It looks like there's a red all the way round or yeah. pink all the way round. Yeah, they do have a pink tinge when they're. Hmm. they're I can't um, see just a dot. To open. This one's lost theirs. Yeah. Uh, that there one is just there. forming yeah. there. And that one's just forming there. We'll see if we can find a, another open one. And it's supposed to, you know, the myth has it, it's where Queen Anne pricked her finger and a drop of blood fell on the lace. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, in terms of botany, um, it's thought that it's used as a kind of as a beacon for I was going to say, yeah, zoom in. Yeah. yeah. Clover there, that's another one. And Forget then, me not, no use, I guess. Oh, lots of birds living in here. And then uh, this, which is uh, water mint. I mean, it looks, it looks like, like mint. mint. Yeah, it's got the, you know, this mint has square stem. Mm. So there we go, we have the square stem. Um, okay. It smells very strongly of, of mint, but it's kind of like a musky mint rather than a pepperminty okay. mint. And it's perfectly okay to use that? Uh, yeah, it... yeah, members of the uh, mint family are... Um, is that more down there? Very good. Oh, yes, right. yeah. So um, there we go, there's a good example of the purple spot. Oh yeah, Goodness me. Queen um, Anne's lace. Yes, Queen Anne's lace or uh, wild carrot, Dorcas It's We have to be careful with common names because common names can be very regionalised. Yes. So um, I mean that one. I mean that one really does look like a drop of blood. <laughs> yeah. But Queen Anne's lace um, is some parts of the country um, people call Queen Anne's lace what I would call uh, cow parsley. Um, mm. So you have to be very careful when it comes to uh, common names. So that's where scientific names, wherever you are in the world, the scientific can be relied on. Be the same. So, uh, so this is, I mean, this is ridiculously dry now. Um, I, I came to do a few reckeys last year, and there was lo- an awful lot of mushrooms here. So, um, so I'm hoping to, you know, be able to find lots to talk about in a few months' time. If we- some rain (laughs) i don't think anyone here would would have expected they'd have been praying for rain a couple of months ago no it's just absolutely phenomenal Um, yeah but um to actually lose track of when it last rained is yeah yeah as i say i mean i I came in here in march and and the water was up to to this this um wildflower meadow it was incredible and now it's it's brown Mm. um so yeah it's uh and and there was a seal actually swimming over there because the water had all come (laughs) 
So, uh, yeah, it's, um, you know, it's, it makes it interesting for different sorts of plants and, and things like that. And, um, yeah, and certainly the mushrooms um, when they come along. But, um, but yeah, yeah. And is it going to be you cooking later on? With yes, it will be, yeah. 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 Okay. So, yeah, so it looks like today it's going to be predominantly salad-based. that was Carrie Bones there talking with Liz or taking her through her paces out in the wilds as she taught her how to forage. The music was Find My Way by Gabe Dixon Band. So, so Liz, (laughs) were you out in the wilds then when you were doing this? Well, (laughs) um... Hinchinbrook Park. Okay. Is that the world? Well, I, it, yeah, it's not the high street. It, it's tamed a little bit. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I mean, it's out there's the wildlife out, out there if you look. So yeah. did you enjoy doing this? Very Is this much. something you'd go back and do? Oh, yeah. I thought it was a brilliant idea to run a course like that. And she's doing more in the uh, autumn because although she was hoping for there to be more fungi-type stuff to look at that day, because of the hot weather we've had, there wasn't so much of that ilk. So uh-huh. definitely she's going to be back in the autumn with another course. Yeah. I should have checked out dates. but yeah, yeah. Well, she did see that, didn't she? Yeah. It would be about fungi. Mm, yeah. yeah. And is this something that you both used to do when you were younger? Because I did. Yeah, blackberries yeah. and hazelnuts. Hmm. Or they could have been, did she say filberts in that, that bit? Is that what they called? No, another name, a type mm. of... Yes. Yeah, the little round things. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Beech nuts yeah. as well. We used to go out, my granny, and I was, she was a big fan of this, just going out to the hedgerows and picking up, you know, berries, um, blackberries and, and things like that that were growing wild. And we'd take them home and she'd make jam and she'd make jelly and she'd make pies, mm. all that kind of thing. And blueberries, we called them blaberries in Scotland, but they were kind of l- growing low down. Yeah. And they were a right killer to pick because they're tiny, tiny little navy blue berries. Were they prickly to pick? No, uh, I can't remember. Not oh. not the berries themselves. They might have been. It might have been slightly prickly round about. Yeah. Right. Was it, you know, when you're a kid, you don't notice that no. sort of was thing. Was it on the hill? Did they grow on yes. the hill? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm sure that's the same thing as uh, grew in Wales, where my grand lived, and we called them Wimberries. You could actually, you'd get people at that the right time of year would come round and knock on the door selling a, you know, a glass full of them to put in a pie. Fantastic. Uh-huh. They, they are a bit of a pick, but they are well worth it. Absolutely gorgeous. But they kind of stain your teeth for a little while. Yep. You've got to go and brush your teeth because it's all blue in your mouth, but they are beautiful. Mm. But there is the terror, isn't there, of um, of knowing what to pick, of knowing, knowing the right things to pick when yeah. you're in the countryside. Yeah. Definitely with um, fungi. That, oh, absolutely. I, I would. Think, you know what? Mm. I wouldn't go near them. <clears throat> no, I wouldn't either. I mean, I apparently it's very easy to tell a field mushroom, but I think it's also very easy to get it wrong. So. Yeah, mm. that, that would scare me a little bit. Yep. But of course, mm. she knows what she's doing. Absolutely. So you're getting taught by an expert mm. there, and that's Did great. Did you know you could eat tulips? I didn't. The, the no. <laughs> I would never have thought of them as a crop. I thought that was amazing. But a lot of restaurants now are doing things like that, yes. aren't they? It's on mm. the menu, real mm. fancy stuff. Wild stuff. And yes. Violets. 
I, you know what, nasturtiums, don't talk to me about nasturtiums. My granny used to love nasturtiums as well. And I think, I do seem to remember that she would sometimes put them on the plate. I think that we were having, but the thing that I hated about nasturtiums was she'd pick them and put them in the house from the garden. She grew lots of them and there'd always be an earwig living in the, you know the you know they the, the kind of go down to a, a cone thing they, yeah. and they, they go down and you can't see them and there'd always be these blooming we called them forky tails and there'd always be these these earwigs that would <laughs> climb in there and then they would climb out and, uh, and and run all over the place i absolutely hated them i was absolutely terrified mm. of them yeah I suppose yeah. if you were really keen, you could forage for them as well and, and cook them. Oh, you? <laughs> enough. <laughs> well, it's just a step too far. Yeah. <laughs> You've spent too much time with Kerry. These days, people go off on such exotic holidays. And my family, my daughter and family, they have zoomed off a couple of days ago on their way to Australia. Oh, wow, that's great. However, they did a stopover in Singapore. And there have been loads and loads of gorgeous photographs of all the family in Singapore. And, uh, of course, they had to go to Disney. I don't know whether it's Disney in Singapore. There's in a Disney Singapore. In Singapore. Wow. In, I didn't even know there was no, a Disney out there. But believe me, there's a Disney because there's lots of pictures of, of all of them, but particularly the children alongside things like um, Winnie the Pooh and in enormous shops. You have never seen the size of these shops <laughs> with Pooh Bears and Tiggers and all, all that, you know, all the characters absolutely everywhere and are they cheaper out there then i've no idea i'm just wondering because it, it's thought to be a kind of slightly cheaper place isn't it certainly for some things yes yes certainly for some things tailoring they say that's what is, it's famous for yes. is very yes and liz you said that you were going to singapore or somebody you know is. no I, I had a whatsapp message this morning saying that my daughter had landed in singapore wow yeah it's work for her Mm. But um, she will be relaxing at some stage during her visit there, I'm sure. And she's managed to persuade her sister to join her over there. So. Oh, fantastic. But would you go all that way for a week? I don't think I could. For a week? Well, a week I yeah. don't know. I think, yes. If if they invite if, me, yeah. if, you know, if, if, if they if, want if, to or, extend the WhatsApp invitation to me, <laughs> I will climb in a plane right now. <laughs> Good for you, Linda. <laughs> How many hours away is Singapore? You tell me, Bobby. I've no idea. Well, I it's about it's halfway to Australia, isn't yeah, it? So it must be about basically. 12, isn't it? I would say, I'd guess 12 or 13 hours from here. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. So not that long, really. All you need is a good podcast, a good book. <laughs> and a sleep, if you're lucky. And a sleep, you know. What you really need to do, though, is go business class. Yeah, that might be the answer. That is the answer to everyone's problems, actually. I have friends, and they were upgraded recently on a quite a long flight. They were going to Dubai, and they got to the airport, and the person behind them, oh, oh, actually, you've been upgraded. And they were travelling with another couple of people, and they said, oh, that's brilliant, but the problem is, and they felt really bad, because the problem is, you know, we've got two other people, and we can't really leave them in steerage when we're sitting in business class. And they went, no worries, we'll upgrade them as well. 
Fantastic. Amazing. And they were, of course, they were taking lots of pictures and putting them in Facebook. And it's, it's a lovely seat that you kind of extend down to a bed. You get fed champagne. I mean, that was the works. I mean, this just was amazing. I wonder if you arrive feeling any better, though, than in steerage class. Bet you do. Do you reckon? Yeah, because you can lie down and have a bit of a proper sleep. As long um, as you haven't got a headache from your... For the champagne. For the champagne. Yeah. Yeah, there is that. I mean, I suppose you've just got to kind of control yourself a bit. I guess. And, you know, maybe maybe after the first bottle, maybe the <laughs> second, you've really got to draw a line under it, you know, and just kind of think, no. No more than enough. one per hour. No, no <laughs> more than a bottle per hour. You'll be fine. into the future, spreading your light wherever you are. No, I mean, they say that sleeping and drinking lots of water, you've got to stay hydrated when you're, when you're flying because seriously, it would be, a, would be a horrible problem. And you don't want to end up in the papers as being one of these people that has to be escorted off with, road, with not road rage, uh, air rage. Because you got grumpy, yeah. Well, they get a bit more gr- than grumpy, don't <laughs> they? Some of them behave like complete imbeciles. They do. But actually, funnily enough, there was a story in the paper the other day about a woman who they'd refused to let go to the loo and she just went. She squatted down <laughs> in the galley, took her trousers down. What was the down. reason for refusing? Was it because it was the time when I you need to buckle up again or something? I, well, if it was, then she wasn't buckled up because no. she was, I mean, pictured. Yeah. Squ- and there was a bit of a video with it. I don't know where I saw this, but there was a bit of a video with it and people were going, that's, you know, British people going, that's just ridiculous. That's really shocking, ridiculous doing that there. And she was kind of going, look, they wouldn't let me use the toilet and I'm absolutely desperate. I mean, it's an interesting dilemma, though, if you're really, really desperate. I mean, I wouldn't do that. I certainly would not squat down, pull my trousers down and go. I mean, that is not anything I would ever dream of. But imagine if you're really, really desperate. What happens? There must be people who just kind of have to go. Yeah, well, it's a a mass of humanity in an aeroplane, isn't it? So anything could happen, really. Well, exactly. Oh, it doesn't bear thinking about not flying anywhere again. (laughs) I think that, yeah, it's quite a serious thing, really, thinking about some older people that do have problems in that area. Mm. So, I mean, But they've probably got the tenor pads on. And I think... (laughs) (laughs) I think that might be the way to go, actually. You know, any time you're doing a flight, get the tenor pads on. You could do it for any trip, in the car as well. Well, actually... When you come to think about it, we could do with them right now. (laughs) Shall we try another subject? (laughs) Well, the other thing is, of course, how much will a tenner pound hold? Would someone like to try this out? See how much they contain before they go squish. My husband got very upset the other day because in our conservatory, it's been so hot, as everybody knows, we've had all the doors and all the windows open in our little conservatory in order to get a bit of airflow through. And one of those beautiful dragonflies flew in and looked as though it was a bit 
disorientated, and for some unknown reason, it couldn't find its way out. It kept batting its nose against the glass, trying to get out. And uh, my husband said, I think that we should help it. I said, no, no, it'll find its way out. Honestly, it will, because there's a draught of air and it'll follow the draught of air. And then I was mortified the next day when I went out there and discovered this beautiful, beautiful uh, creature absolutely stuck in a spider's web (gasps) at the top of our conservatory. Oh, Bobby, that's shocking. You've got a spider's web at the top of your... (laughs) Anyway, you found it. You found this. Oh, that's a shame. Did you bury it in the garden? I knew you were going to say that, Linda. I was just <laughs> waiting got, for you, you to say. Have you a headstone sorted out? No. Was it dead? Oh, it was very dead. Oh, was it? Very dead. Yes, yes, I, I did um, remove it, but no, I'm afraid I didn't bury it. I'm afraid he went in the bin. Oh, that's a bit of an inglorious end. Spiders' webs are very interesting. Have you ever sat and watched them? I love No, I don't have any in my house, Bobby. <laughs> no, I was thinking more of the garden. If you got laurel which i have got in my garden spiders seem to like this and they love to spin their webs and when it's been raining they look absolutely fabulous oh they are they're stunning they're fabulous i mean when you look at them actually they're so intricate i mean who teaches them to do that Yes, after the episode with the dragonfly, I got right up the top and discovered that there was a whole heap of these little, you know, the little funny little hoverflies that look a little bit like wasps, only oh, they're not. Yes, and yes. there was a whole pile of them in, in a very tight corner, oh. all stuck inside um, a web. Oh. So obviously the spider had been going along and collecting them oh. and pushing them into this corner oh, for weird. later consumption, I have to assume. And now you've taken them away as well. The poor spider. Have you thought about the spider? I mean, it has gone out. With a huge larder full of stuff. Come back and gone, where the heck? He would have had to have gone next door and asked for a spoonful of sugar. Coming up, another interview that I absolutely love. It's Bobby talking to Lucy Kay who lives on a houseboat. So this morning I'm talking to Lucy Kay, who lives on a houseboat in one of the marinas in Huntingdon. And she has lived here with her partner for six years. So, Lucy, what attracted you to live on a houseboat? Well, two reasons it's beautiful I love the river and the water and we like the idea of living on a nice little boat where we can take it up and down the river on a holiday and, and oh of course yeah. yes and you don't have to pack you're taking your home with you so it's brilliant <laughs> um, and also because it was a cheaper alternative at the time to us getting a flat mm-hmm. so the mooring fees are very reasonable around here and you pay a river licence 
Ah, you have to have a licence to live on the river. You do, yes. Do you have to pay council tax? Yes. You do? We pay council tax, yeah. Right, okay. So, what are the differences with living permanently on a boat to living in a house? Well, you get to wake up every morning with the ducks running around your roof. (laughs) Do they have hobnail boots on? (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's it's lovely and relaxing. The rocking is beautiful, and the sound of the rain on the roof is lovely. Obviously, when it's stormy, it can get a bit choppy. Mm. Um, it's like on Mary Poppins when you go post and you have to grab all the valuables and you sellotape to secure the drawers when it gets really bad. But it doesn't happen that often. It's only in the very worst weather. Well, we were mentioning before we came on air about a washing machine and you don't have a washing machine at this point but you're aiming towards one we are yes there are things you have to get used to Um, with with regards to the electrics you can't have the kettle on at the same time as the blower heater or you can't have the microwave and the kettle on at the same time because the fuse will go and you have to go outside and do a little fiddle so little things like that you get used to and like you say not having a washing machine but luckily there's a laundrette so that's Sort of taking laundrette on site. On site. Ah, oh, that's handy. Yeah. Yes. And um, what about a bathroom and hot water and shower? Yeah, we've got a fully functioning bathroom with a, a shower, and all the water is heated on the boat by the water tank. So you haven't got a real bath; you have showers. We've got a shower. Because yeah. uh, uh, that would take up a lot of space having a real bath, it wouldn't would. it? There was a couple who lived on the marina who had a corner bath in their boat, but they had a much bigger boat than this. <laughs> And what is the size of this? It's 57 foot long and about 7 foot wide. Gosh. Oh, we might be able to hear the call of a coot outside now. I can hear it going. (laughs) So, the benefits of living on a boat are that you're really close to nature. Yes. To water, to waterfowl and birds. And what about animals? Have you come across any foxes or...? Um, I haven't on the marina but alongside the river we have um when we go out on the river in the little boat we've seen little things. i'd love to see an otter i haven't seen one yet but many people who live here have and you earlier mentioned a cormorant that's correct yeah we have a resident cormorant who's massive and likes to stand shaking his wings out and drying himself yeah it's lovely especially springtime with all the chicks oh yes and anything else unusual Bird-wise, or...? Um, we do get a lot of herons and geese and swans and ducks and coots. We also have a lot of fish in the marina and eels. Eels? I've seen the cormorant catch two eels before. Mm-hmm. We've swallowed them whole. Gosh, how exciting. Yeah. I think there was a fishing lake on the other side of the river and quite a few years ago it flooded. So we have a lot of prize-winning fish in here. They're huge, really massive Does the marina get very busy with people going up and down and moving around? Um, There's a lot of people who own the plastic day boats. So in summer they're constantly coming and going. Uh, But they're not here in winter because it's not suitable for them. Plastic day boats? Yeah. I love that. (laughs) What do you mean by that? Little rowboats or what? Um, These ones here. 
Oh, well, they're not really exactly plastic, are they? They, not. they look quite expensive little cruisers to me. They are. How interesting. You think that they're plastic. That's <laughs> what us real boaters call them. OK, <laughs> fair enough, yes. And this is amazing. I can stand in the middle and almost touch both sides of the boat and as I'm sitting here, Lucy has got an old, well, I would say old-fashioned, but it's probably not because they're, they're very uh, in these days. Mm. It's a, a heater, isn't it? Well, it came with the boat. It's an old-fashioned Morso wood burner with a water heater on the back, which is connected via some pipes all the way down the length of the boat to radiators and various other things, towel racks so we can heat our radiators yeah. modernity exactly but you've got everything here you've got a microwave you you've got your cooker you've got hot water so in actual fact it, it's really exciting now you've been here for six years and you said that your partner bought this and then you started to do it up what did you need to do Everything We had to strip out the entire interior all the way back to the bare metal. And once it was at the bare metal, we then had to treat the metal and, and paint it with anti-rust paints and what have you. And then we had to put the ballast in the bottom, lots of concrete blocks and bricks and what have you. And then you start to insulate it and board it out with the wood and then you decide where you want your rooms to go. And then... Then you have to put the electrics in and the gas in and the plumbing in. I didn't have much to do with the gas and plumbing, but I did help with the electrics. I, I must confess, I didn't realise, but thinking about it, you've got to have concrete blocks at the bottom, haven't you? Yes. Otherwise, the boat would just simply turn turtle as soon as there was a big wave. It would, yeah. The ballast is very important. You have to think about weight distribution as well where your couch goes and your cooker goes and your fridge goes to make sure that you don't have everything down one side, otherwise you'll be leaning so you've got to make sure it all works out of nicely. course yeah but how do you manage with things like getting your post and cleaning out your loo all that kind of thing well the marina um very nicely provide a post room so there's little cubicle boxes with the letter of your last name so your post goes in there we all have our own little key and the laundrette's also in there, so oh. we can get our post that way. And if you have a big parcel, they keep it behind their counter for you to come and collect. Right. So that's not a problem at all. The toilet is his duty, I don't Absolutely. do Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Ladies don't do that. <laughs> but it has to be removed from the boat and yeah. taken and emptied and washed and sterilised and then brought back again. And do you have to do that very often? Uh, no, not that often. Oh. Perhaps once a month. Really? Yeah. That's better than living in a caravan because you've got yeah. to do that much more frequently. Thank you very much. You've given us a bird's eye view of what it's like to, to live on board a boat. And thank you very much. You're welcome. was Lucy Kay telling Bobby Jones what life is like living on a boat. The music was Claude Debussy, Claire de Lune. I thought that was great. I loved, I loved that. I love that interview. Um, and I fancy living in a boat, to be quite honest. I've always fancied living in a boat. 
Yeah, me too. I think that was what drew me to actually wanting to chat to that lady. Yeah. I wanted to find out what it was like. When I was looking for a flat, I lived in London and we had to buy, well, I wanted to buy a place to live. I was buying on my own. And the cheaper option was to buy a houseboat. The problem in London was getting a mooring. The river licence and the mooring. Well, the moor, it's getting, the just mooring. just getting a mooring. Mm. You'd want a serviced mooring with electric and yep. water. Oh, yeah. Because otherwise, it would, I mean, life would just have been like, you know, the 1800s. So you have to have certain things. Yeah. And it was just so difficult to, to get that. Very, very, A, very expensive, but B... You know, very, very difficult just to get. Mm. Eventually got one, a boat and the mooring, but it was way outside London. And when I aimed, when I kind of added it all up, I thought, mm, you know, and I ended up just going back to looking at boring old flats and I bought a flat. Mm. <laughs> like most people do. Like most people do. I didn't want to be most people, Liz. No, I understand I wanted that. to be somebody, but no. <laughs> I was just most people like everyone else. <laughs> but yeah, it sounds just idyllic doesn't it i think it's very romantic to live on a boat isn't it yeah the whole idea of sort of picking up your house and taking it off with you to somewhere exotic yeah <laughs> i know and, and that's the bit that i loved as well she talked about that didn't she yes. where you can you know you got your whole house with you mm. uh, and i know we, we went in the norfolk broads a few years ago and that was great and what i liked was just making your lunch but looking out and you were actually, you were, you were moving along the river. You know, my husband would be motoring along and I'd be sort of in the kitchen doing something. And it was just lovely. It's a lovely, lovely uh, idea. And you see all the, the wildlife as well. Yeah, you mm. see so much more, don't you, from the river itself. You do. You do. It's just, it's just another world. And everyone's much more friendly when you're yes. on the river. Everyone waves, which, you know, you wouldn't do well, going along the, the A428, would you? Waving at all the cars. Well, not if you're, not if you're over no. 12. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I love, I love yeah. that idea. I still fancy getting mm. a boat. Well, one of my very favourite treats is to go on to uh, a narrow boat or a boat on the river, which is one of these restaurant boats mm -hmm. um, that also will take you for a little cruise at the same time. Yeah. And they're, they're lovely. Yes. They're, they are around. They are around, actually. You're absolutely right. I like that idea as well. I do. Well, I guess that's about all we've got time for, isn't it, this evening on uh, 21st Century Woman? Our huge thanks go to Jenny Barrett, Kerry Bonus and Lucy Kay. If you're listening to HCR 104FM, next up is the Country Show with John and Jackie Manders. And on Cambridge 105 Radio, it's at Saturday Sport. This show will be available as a podcast on iTunes and on Mixcloud. We'll be back in September. September already, would you believe that? Until then, it's goodbye from Bobby Jones. Goodbye. From Liz Kelly. Goodbye. And from me, Linda Ness. See you next time. <laughs> <laughs>